Please turn with me to Romans chapter 6. We're uh, returning to this uh, book. We've been making our way through it for uh, quite a long time. And uh, we're going we're gonna to come back to it. When we were last in Romans, we were at the end of chapter 5. And the beginning of chapter 6, we looked at uh, this question that Paul raises in the first verse of this sixth chapter. It's a question that comes as a result of the things that he's been saying. He's been saying that forgiveness, that acceptance with God is a free gift. You can look in the fifth chapter and you can see him use that language. Uh, It's a free gift. Salvation is. It's not earned. It's not merited. You can't figure out a way to deserve it. It's conferred. It's granted. It's given. And it's been given because of what Jesus has done. And that is all because of God's grace. And if you remember, looking back at at the fifth chapter, you'll remember that Paul continues to use these words like abounding and superabounding and grace that is just poured out. And the last time we were in this book, I said to you, you you can't out-sin the grace of God. You can't out-sin the grace of God. Now, don't go try. That's not wise. But you can't do it. And so what Paul gets in this first verse of this sixth chapter is this question. Well, if that's the way it works, if it's a free gift, if it's all of grace, if you can't out-sin the grace of God, let's continue in sin so that we can know more grace. Right? It's a simple math. I like to sin. God likes to forgive. It works out nicely. And what I suggested to you, this is going back six weeks ago, is that if that is your view of salvation, it's too small. It's not big enough. Salvation is about so much more than just forgiveness. And that's what the apostle is drilling down into in this sixth chapter. So let's read this together as we continue to seek to think God's thoughts after him and and seek to understand the Apostle Paul. Let's read these first 11 verses together. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old man, that's the word in the text. Some of you probably have the word self or nature or something like that. The word is man, our old man was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe we also will live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, and the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, 
Um, as always, we humble ourselves before you and acknowledge that we need your help. Uh, we need your help to understand. We need your help to open our eyes so that we can apprehend these things. We need your help so that our hearts will gladly receive these things and embrace and believe these things. And we need your help so that our wills might be engaged in the struggle, the ongoing struggle to live in the newness of life that you've called us to in Jesus. So, Lord, in all three respects, in every way, help us as we come to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, let me give you three pegs to hang this on, and then I want to give you an illustration, and I want to encourage you to keep this illustration in mind as we work through this. Here are the three pegs. The Christian understands three things, or seeks to understand three things, wrestles with three things, and that is this, a true Christian is someone who has died. A true Christian is someone who has died. A true Christian is someone who is alive. A true Christian is someone who has died, a true Christian is someone who is alive, and a true Christian is someone who thinks differently about himself, okay? Those three things. A Christian is someone who has died. A Christian is someone who is alive, been raised again. And a Christian is someone who considers or who reckons or who thinks differently about himself or herself. And here's the illustration. You know the film A Beautiful Mind. It's the story of John Nash who was a Nobel Prize laureate at Princeton University, a mathematician, and he suffered from schizophrenia. Now, I don't know what they use as technical terms to describe schizophrenia in these days because there are a lot of different monikers or names that are given to various kinds of disorders that I think at one point were gathered under the general heading of schizophrenia. But in John Nash's case, it's a very appropriate and descriptive word. Schizo means division, right? Schism, schism, division. And the last half of that word comes from a word that means mind, divided mind. And if you know the story, John Nash lived, if you will, with two realities. He lived with a reality occupied by Ed Harris and Paul Bettany and the little girl, you know, you remember if you've seen the film? And he lived with another reality, the reality of his marriage, his wife, his son, and friends who cared about him. And his struggle was what? To figure out which of those realities was the really real reality. What's really real? Now, i got to tell you, as a Christian, I get that. I get that. The Psalms, David in the Psalms, plead, pleads with God that God would unite his heart that he might not sin against him. Why? Because his heart is divided. I think it's Archbishop William Temple who said, I am not a man, I am a civil war. Right? As a Christian, I get that. And I want to suggest to you that what Paul is addressing here 
in part, or at least the application of what he's talking about, or one of the applications of what he's talking about here, is this perennial and ongoing struggle that's described in the Westminster Confession of Faith, this this constant struggle between the flesh and the spirit, between, as the confession puts it, these two natures. Okay? The Christian gets this, understands that there is this warfare and this conflict that goes on. And Paul, at least in terms of application, I think we can think this way, Paul is seeking to address and speak to, at least in part, that very thing. And here's what he's saying to these folks. He's saying there are these three things that are true of you as a Christian. You've died, you've been raised, and you need to think and labor and work at thinking differently about yourself. So first, the dying. The dying. Let's remember Paul's argument here. Let's remember where he's come from in this this letter. What he's doing is writing to people that he's never met. He's writing to these folks who are living in Rome. He's probably writing from Corinth the city of Corinth, and he's hoping to go to Rome. And so what he's doing is writing and expounding the gospel as he understands it for the benefit of these folks so that when he gets there, they'll have a a kind of a starting point together, a, a place of common understanding. And as he begins his gospel, he begins his gospel at a place, frankly, that our culture doesn't really want to start. And frankly, I don't really want to start, and you don't want to start either. He starts with the problem of sin and the universality of it and the depth of it. Remember back in chapter 1 and then going on into chapter 2, he speaks particularly to the Jewish listeners in the audience. In the first couple of verses of Romans chapter 2, he says, But you, O man, who is the man? Well, it's this Jewish listener Paul has in mind. He knows that the Jewish listener is going to say, Well, I know that Gentiles are sinful. I know that they're wretched and rotten. Thank God we're not like other people. Right? You have to think back several months to remember all of this stuff from chapter 2. But as Paul continues to work out this argument, he focuses also on his Jewish listeners. And basically in that second chapter says, look, the things that you have trusted in can't help you. They can't help you. The fact that you are part of the covenant, the fact that you have the law, the fact that you have circumcision, those things in and of themselves can't help you. You need something more than that. And into chapter 3, he comes to the conclusion at the end of chapter 3 that all alike, Jew and Gentile, this is verse 9, all alike are under sin. And then in those verses beginning in chapter 3, he cites the Old Testament. He brings the scriptures of the Old Testament, into the discussion to persuade particularly his Jewish listeners, but everybody who's hearing this letter read, that whether Jew or Gentile, all, all are under sin. And then, of course, in in chapter 3, at the end of chapter 3, he sets forth in that very condensed and powerful passage, beginning in verse 21, that Jesus Christ is the answer to the human condition. 
Jesus Christ is the substitute. Jesus Christ is the redeemer. Jesus Christ is the one who propitiates the wrath of God. Jesus Christ, as the substitute, as the redeemer, takes my place before the judgment seat of God, and God visits his wrath upon Jesus as my sins are transferred from me, given to him. He bears the penalty. He bears the weight. And the free gift of salvation is received by faith. And he holds out David and Abraham in chapter 4 as these two great examples of people who are justified, that is accepted and received, not on the basis of what they've done, but on the basis of what Jesus has done in their behalf. David and Abraham are these two great examples. Abraham getting most of the ink in that fourth chapter. And then he gets to the end of the fourth chapter and he says, let me come at it from a slightly different angle. Let me describe this problem in this way. Let me describe this issue in this way. Do you remember Adam? All died in Adam because in some mysterious way, all sinned in Adam. The first head of the human race by his sin, this is chapter 5, beginning at verse 12, by his first sin, brought death and oppression and all of the ravages of sin into the world. Adam brought all of that into the world. And you remember the cute, quaint little story that I tell about my daughter Annie when she was six years old and she was roller skating on our driveway and she fell and tore up her knees and they're bleeding and I took her into the house and with tears in her eyes, she looked up at me and said, Daddy, if Adam hadn't sinned, this wouldn't have happened. That's a cute, quaint story, but it is so profoundly true. Because of the sin of Adam and because of this mysterious connection that we have to Adam, this real and vital connection to Adam, we suffer the effects of his disobedience. And sin, as we said, has made its assault, has made its attack upon you and me and everything around us. But then God has done something, hasn't he? He's given us a second Adam. One who rather than sinning has been obedient. One who rather than being unrighteous is righteous. And Paul says in chapter 5, to all in effect, to all who receive this free gift of grace, there is a righteousness now that belongs to them. And they are justified because of that righteousness. That's what he says in verse 18. This one act of righteousness, Jesus Christ the righteous, leads to justification for all who will receive this gift, this free gift. And so you see, we get then to chapter 6 where Paul, again, is anticipating this question. Well, if it's all about Jesus and it's not about me, if it's a free gift, an act of God's free grace, if there's nothing I can do to earn it or deserve it, but simply receive it with all of these blessings, well, it doesn't matter what I do. And that's where Paul wants to say there is another dimension to this salvation. It's not just about forgiveness. Because sin isn't just about lawlessness. Sin is also a power. It is a power. And it is a power that holds people captive. It is a power that keeps people 
in bondage. Look at the language that he uses. As he begins to talk about Jesus, he talks about Jesus being raised from death to life. He refers to people who are no longer, because they have trusted in Christ, they are no longer, verse 6, slaves to sin. Verse 7, those who have died in Christ have been set free from sin. You see, sin is a bondage. It's a power. It is a force that holds people down. Sometimes we like to say we sin because we are sinners. Because there is something about our nature. There is something in us over which we have no control, right? No control. I know that Alcoholics Anonymous takes some shots from the church sometimes because in the 12 steps, the power that is referred to isn't specifically described or defined as Jesus Christ. Well, okay, let's take exception to that. That's in step number two. But let's not take exception to what Alcoholics Anonymous says, what it encourages its adherents to understand and believe, and that is step number one. I admitted that I was powerless over alcohol. Now, you can remove alcohol and you can slip into the blank anything you want. Powerless over pride. Powerless over attitudes of condescension. Powerless with respect to pornography. Powerless with respect to materialism. Powerless with respect to a constant attention to what the markets are doing. Powerless with respect to a culture that seems to be out of control and that terrifies me when I read in the newspaper on Sunday morning that a congresswoman is shot through the brain apparently by a 22-year-old insane person. I, can't, I, I am powerless before these things, right? And the question is, what do these things do to my heart? How do these things capture and imprison my heart? You can slip into that little blank space in the first step of the 12-step program, anything, anything. Powerless before a desire to be thin, Powerless before a desire to have the right boyfriend. Powerless before the desire to look in the right way. Sound the right way. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. Can I, can I say something really carefully? I want to say this so carefully because I love you people. I love being here. I love this church. I've been doing this for over 30 years. And I will tell you that one of the reasons people, one of the reasons people with addictive behaviors don't come to the church is because when they come to the church, they do not see people who gladly and happily will confess that their lives are out of control and unmanageable. We don't say it. We don't look it. I used to say to our folks at St. Paul's up in Orlando, if we want to do church in the right way, we come in rags and we leave well-dressed. We come as sinners. 
people whose lives are unmanageable and out of control. That's what Paul is saying here. And what has to happen? Something decisive, something powerful has to happen if I'm to be freed from this. The power of sin has to be broken. And in the second step, folks in Alcoholics Anonymous say, we've come to believe that a power greater than myself, and listen to this language. I love this, i got to tell you. A power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. See, sin creates insanity. Sin makes people crazy. Because sin destroys. It's a brutal master. That's the imagery Paul uses in this passage. It's a brutal master. It's a taskmaster. It robs people of life. It sucks the life out of life. And what Paul is saying in this chapter is that you have a problem far bigger than the problem of your little peccadillos, your little sins. These little things that you do that violate your own sense of what is right and appropriate. Apart from Christ, I am imprisoned by sin. And something decisive has to happen. And what Paul is saying is that for the Christian, something decisive has happened. For the Christian, the old man has died. That's the language that he uses in verse 6. There's been a death. See, there's that word death throughout this passage. There's been a death, not just the death of Jesus, but when I receive Jesus, when I accept Jesus, when I get to the place where I acknowledge my life is a mess, my life is out of control, my life is unmanageable, I am a prisoner, and I look to Jesus, what happens is that there's another death. The one who died and who was raised again and who is at the right hand of the Father who possesses all authority and all power in the whole of the cosmos bears his sword and goes after the hydra. You remember the hydra from Greek mythology. You cut off a head and seven heads come back. And Jesus goes after not the heads, not the external manifestations, not the outward evidences, he goes to the core, he goes to the root, and he commits a murder. And he murders the old man. And who is the old man? What is the old man? Let me suggest to you this. Even as I read the Westminster Confession of Faith, and I I don't like fighting with the church, trust me. I, I don't like picking fights with people who are a whole lot smarter than I am. But even as I read the Westminster Confession of Faith, I hear suggested in what we confessed this morning, this notion that there are sort of two natures now within the Christian. That there's this old man, you know, who's hanging out in the garage or down in the basement or in some dark corner of some closet someplace. And then there's this new man on the inside of me, born of God, born of the Spirit. I believe in regeneration. I believe all of that stuff. But let me suggest to you that I think there's something else going on here. Who is this old man who is slain, who is crucified? Who is this old man who has died? Well, if we understand that verse in the context of what Paul has been saying in chapters 5 and 6, the old man is my connection to Adam. He's the old man. 
That's what Paul has set up in chapter 5. There is the first Adam who is the old man. It is through him that sin and death and the imprisoning effects of sin and death come into the world. But there is a new man. There is a second man. And when I come to Jesus Christ, what happens to me is that I get radically disconnected from the old man and I get connected now to the new man. And the new man is Jesus. Who died? What died? My connection to that old man, the one who was my first head. The one because of whose sin I suffer all of the things that I suffer. Who is the new man? Who is the second Adam? Jesus Christ the righteous. The one by virtue of connection to whom I enjoy all of the blessings of forgiveness and cleansing and acceptance and righteousness. What died is not, I'm not, there's only one person who has ever walked the face of the earth who has two distinct natures, and that is Jesus, the divine and the human. I'm one, a one-natured person who had a connection to my first father, Adam. But when I come to Christ, that connection is severed, and it is done, and I now am reconnected to Jesus. So there is a death that takes place. And right alongside that death, while there is the death that happens, there is a resurrection. That's what Paul's talking about in verses 3 and 4. Those who have been baptized into Christ's death, we'll talk about that next week. You're going to have to come back. Those who have been baptized into Christ's death, those who have been united to him, united in him, they have been raised to newness of life so that they might walk, verse 4, in newness of life. You see, something on the one hand has been severed, there's a disconnect over here, and there is a reconnect over here so that I now am united to a new head. What flows from this head is sin and death and unrighteousness. What flows from this head is righteousness and life and acceptance. That's the old man who died, the first Adam. And I've been raised. I've been raised to newness of life. It's very, it's very common in our language for us as we talk with one another and as we talk with people outside the church, it's very common for us to ask, have you received Christ? And that's biblical language. John chapter 1. To as many as received him, accepted him, he gave the right to become the children of God. Paul in Colossians refers to the, to the Colossians as those who have in them Christ, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. There are numerous examples of this in the New Testament. But here's the interesting thing. While we, on the one hand, tend to talk in our vernacular and language about whether or not we have Christ in us, more than 150 times in the New Testament, particularly in the letters of Paul, the language is not, is Christ in you, but are you in Christ? Over 150 times. You in Christ. In Him, 
in the beloved, in the Lord Jesus. Read through Paul's letters and you'll see it. And it's very consistent with what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1. It captures all of this imagery. When Paul, again, writing to the, to the Colossians, wants to reassure them and encourage them, he reminds them that he, God the Father, has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and has transferred us, transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. You see, you were in darkness. You were under the dominion of darkness, but he, by his grace, has transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. So for the Christian, for, for each of you here who has received this and embraced this and, and at some level knows this to be true, there's been a death, there's been a disconnection. You are removed from your connection to Adam legally and experientially and existentially. And you have been reconnected to a new head, the lover of your souls, the Lord Jesus Christ, who loves his bride, who lays down his life for his bride, and who will never, ever be separated from his bride. You are in him, connected to him, the new Adam. So there has been a dying there has been a resurrection. And so now, for me as a Christian, now there is a reckoning. Third, there is a considering. There is a thinking differently about things. And that's what Paul is encouraging these people to do. He's going to go on to say much more about this in verses 15 and following, this imagery of slaves and masters. And, and if you have a new master, why would you entrust yourself anymore to the old master? But the fact of the matter is, isn't this true? That while I can read this, and with my mind, I can understand, I can make the connections biblically and theologically, I can connect the dots, I can understand that because of what God has done for me in Jesus Christ, I've been disconnected from the old. I've been connected to the new. The old has passed away. The new has come. I'm a new creature in Christ. And yet, isn't it the case? Isn't it the case that I have the memory, the memory of my old master? I have the memory of my old master. I remember the other reality. And all too often, as we said in this public confession, all too often we forget that the old master robs us of life. We remember the old master and we, we go back there, Forgetting that the old master robs us of life. We have these memories. We have these habits. We have these recollections. We think that the old master is going to set us free. And we have to remind ourselves. We have to reckon that we are dead to that master and we are alive to the new master. And the new master doesn't kill Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it in abundance. 
And I have to consider and remind myself of these things. And, and frankly, pre- what is preaching? I want to tell you what preaching is for me. It's a new definition. Just came up with it this week. Preaching is me reckoning with you. Reminding you. Reminding myself. Reorienting us. Turning us back toward Jesus. In whom is life. Okay? A couple of illustrations. And then we'll close. John chapter 11. Think about this. What a great story. It's a perfect picture of what I'm talking about. The resurrection of Lazarus. Dead in the grave. Wrapped in grave cloths. Covered in over 100 pounds of various kinds of ointments and spices and all of that stuff. And what does Jesus do? Jesus calls him back to life. And when he comes out, what do you see? You see a dead man, a man wrapped in grave cloths. But what's underneath the grave cloths? What's beneath all of those spices and ointments and all of that wrapping? New life is there. And Jesus has to tell the people who surround Lazarus, untie him, let him out. What do you see? You see a perfect picture of what I am, of what you are. God has done something decisive in my life. He's raised me from death to life. I have to remind myself of this. I have to remind you of this because as we bump into each other, as we interact with each other, what do we see first? Grave cloths. I don't like the way you stink. You don't like the way I stink. Right? And we can very quickly default to being critical of one another rather than recognizing that beneath those grave cloths is the work of God in raising one from death to newness of life. And that's where John Nash comes in. Such a great, great image. The decisive moment in John Nash's life came after months of therapies and electric shock treatments. His wife threatened to leave him and take their son. And she gets in the car and she starts to drive down the street away from him. He comes flying out of the house. He leaps onto the hood. He says through the glass, they don't get old. Who? Ed Harris, Paul Batani, and the little girl. They don't get old. They're always the same age. Every real person ages. You see, something decisive happened for him. A thing happened which enabled him to differentiate the true reality from the false reality. There's a real sweet scene near the end of the movie where he walks out of a lecture hall and he says to a student standing next to him, do you see those three people over there? And she looks over there and she doesn't see a thing. And she says, no. And he says, thanks. I was just checking He still sees them, but they're not real. They're not real. And who you are now in Jesus Christ is what is real. And who you were in Adam, though you still see it and I still see it, we still bump into it, it is not the reality. Who you are in Jesus Christ, the handiwork of God, a new creation, 
being formed and fashioned and shaped by him so that you might reflect his glory. That's who you are. That's who I am. And that's why we come to this table this morning. We come here. This is a glorious and beautiful and wonderful thing that Jesus has done for us. He has given us this table so that as we take these elements in our hands, as we receive these elements into our hands, we're reckoning, we're considering, we're reminding ourselves that we are new creatures in Christ by virtue of our union with him. And so let me pray and let me invite you to come to this table. Before we come, we'll sing before the throne of God above to prepare our hearts. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you so much for this gospel of grace that not only forgives us, but this gospel of grace that begins to set us free. As we come to this table, I pray for your people that by your spirit, you nourish, nourish, feed our souls and encourage and strengthen our faith. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.